You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Just a great pleasure for me to kick this morning off by introducing the founder of the Advocates for Self-Government, the now founder and executive director of the Separation of School and State Alliance. And uh, Marshall Fritz is going to show us, indeed, how to present these libertarian ideas effectively and give us some insights. Let me introduce my friend and mentor, Marshall Fritz. Give him a big round of applause. Thank you. Oh, are those orange cards wonderful? Am I turned on, Jim? We roll them? Good. Aren't those orange cards? Well, all four of them up here having fun. <laughs> That's great. It is fun to be here, and every summit promises to be the best ever. And, and usually by the time we're uh, end of a uh, summit, uh, we feel that way. It's just uh, we've had them small, we've had them big, we've had them all over the uh, country. Uh, but this one has got something uh, new and exciting, even though it's the 10th. Something new and exciting here, and, and it's just the, uh, the number of uh, new people that we've gotten to meet just uh, already this morning. So um, bless you for being here. It is good. Oh, of course I forgot. Michael, being more prepared than I am, had his assistant hand out their little cards. So I'm going to ask my friends over here at the right time to hand out the little cards. Okay, so would you make sure those things get to people sooner or later? Thank you. Okay. Sooner or later? <laughs> later. You'll know. A friend of mine used to uh, be in professional ball, Tom Summers, and he loves to talk about uh, Yogi Berra, and he says, uh, Yogi, one of his famous Yogiisms was, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> and I'd like to present you a little hypothetical fork in the road <coughs> and see some show of hands. So it's 150 years ago. It's 1845. You can press a button and free 100 slaves. How many of us would do it? May I see a show of hands? Okay, pretty good group. Almost everybody, right? And the others might have too, but they haven't had time to think about it, or they don't like to be manipulated into putting their hands up. <laughs> How many are, don't like to be manipulated into putting their hands up, right? Uh, well, there aren't any of theirs, those here today. <laughs> now, let's say there's another button on your <clears throat> rostrum. And that button, you can free a 1,000 slaves at a price of enslaving 10 new people who have not previously been enslaved. How many of us would press that button? May I see a show? You have 990 net free. How many of us would press that button? May I see a show of hands, please? <laughs> okay, now. Joe Jorgensen is very unhappy with the microphoning at some of our speeches because there's this great eruption of laughter and she keeps replaying the tape trying to figure out what was the joke. And uh, so in, 
in recognition and deference of, to uh, Joe, Def Joe uh, Jorgensen, we will repeat the joke into the microphone. And it was, which 10 people? <laughs> so that was a great one, which 10 people? So we had a couple of, of sort of showing their hands up, that that seemed like a good bargain to them. But what I would like to suggest is that we need to compare success and excellence and see that they, while they sometimes overlap, they are different concepts. And that we need to focus on excellence rather than on success. And as we change the focus on, as we make decisions, as we come, as we come to forks in the road, uh, that, uh, that it's going to be a lot easier on us, and I think we'll have uh, better lives, if we look at the uh, principles involved rather than the, the, um, uh, the possibility of success. In fact, I'd like to say that the, uh, the excellence is the engine and success is the caboose. Because I'm sure that the people who raised their hand believe that slavery is immoral. And yet they are willing to commit an immoral act, enslaving 10 free people, in order to free a 1,000 others. But my own guesstimate is, is that morals ain't math, and math ain't morals. So let us begin. I think we're not faced very often with these buttons, but I think we are faced with the temptation, one example, is to lie, or in the technical term now, put some spin on that answer. And I remember when I ran for office in 1982, running for a libertarian, as a libertarian for Congress in 1982. By the way, I came in fifth place. Anger was first, apathy was second. Democrat named Rick Lehman was third. In terms of, you know, total adults and what they did <laughs> in our district. So uh, Republican was fourth. And I was fifth with 2% of the counted vote, um, a little under 1% of the real, you know, uh, people that were living in that district. So, uh, and I looked right into the camera on one talk show and lied. I got 3,210 votes. And Vernie, would you come up here for just a second? This will be fun. All right. And stand right here, Vernie. Okay. Jim, nice tight focus here. Okay. Thanks. Put your hand out here. Now, I'm going to touch her very lightly on the back of her hand. Could you feel that? Thank you. Thank you very much. That, that ends that part of the demonstration. Okay. I was on a low-watt station that projected to uh, most of North Fresno. Uh, we've, it was 7 o'clock in the evening, a right-wing, um, we'll call him an ultra-conservative. Uh, we followed Gumby. Uh, it was an audience perhaps of dozens. And they were all either right-wing extremists or their surfers had gotten stuck, okay? And a question came at me which, uh, having a, a quick and evil mind, um, I th saw that I could put a little spin on this question and, and, uh, and, and protect the liberal vote, right, while still appealing to the conservative. So I did that. It was a good lie. It wasn't caught, of course. And the reason for the demonstration is maybe, at most, I got, three I got two extra votes because of it. And, you know, I'm getting 2% of the vote, and I knew it. I didn't have candiditis where I thought I had a chance of winning. 
and she could feel that touch. I cannot feel the difference between 3,210 votes and 3,208. I lied on camera for something less than that. So I think we're all faced with the temptation to lie, and even those of us that are, you know, sub but cl closing in on perfect <laughs> fall sometimes. So what? let's go over this little blue card. Cue cards. If you can get them running around. All right, well, I want to say some. That's right. Any creative ways to hand those things out? <laughs> yeah, they'd be handing them out in alphabetical order. <laughs> Anybody fold them like a paper boy? There you go. Okay, these are We're going to compare success versus excellence. We're going to look at five different characteristics, and then we're going to wrap it up. And I have about another um, 11 minutes, so let's go. People who are in the pursuit of success, their orientation is toward getting the job done. Uh, they want to achieve goals. They describe themselves as bottom line people, results oriented people. I get the job done. People who are living their lives and measuring themselves by excellence are trying to live by certain principles. Again, they see excellence as the engine and success, whatever there may be, is the caboose. Their focal point for those who seek success is external. They are looking outside themselves. They need to be comparing themselves to others in order to see if they are successful. Um, a pilot, pilot, hi Bernie. A pilot, uh, any other pilots here? Pilots should be putting up their hands and meeting Bernie someday. Okay, well, they're not, all right. Oh, yes, there is, but she's hiding. <laughs> the uh, a pilot wants a uh, private plane fly and flying up to uh, Portland to make a sale, and the owner of the company, he had the plane anyway, I was talking to the pilot, and he said he remembers when the owner first bought the plane and had a private pilot and all this sort of a thing, and he flew to a, some sort of a fly-in and something rather in Monterey or Pebble Beach Center there, and, uh, and he was really so proud of himself, and he was just, just, he had, a, he had an airplane and a pilot, and he was a major success, right? George, can't you see yourself flying around the, <laughs> the country, and Bernie's your pilot, right? And you're just a major success, you're really feeling great, you're going to your first event, you get off, and you're there on the tarmac, and every other plane is dual engine. And he felt like bleep, right? because he measured himself externally as opposed to anything internal. People, if you're success-oriented, people become just means to an end. A socialist typically looks at people as means to an end. Stalin's famous quote, you know, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. I was on a plane yesterday flying into Atlanta. The guy's now a uh, CFP, Certified Financial Planner. He used to be in the hotel business. And I said, why did you, you know, he says, I didn't like the hotel business. It was just so rush, competitive, this, that. He says, the, the company I was working for, my boss told me, and everybody knew it, 60 hours a week minimum. And your, the hotel, the boss explicitly said, the hotel comes before your, your, your family. The company comes first. If you don't like that, you don't belong in this business. And that was at least the chain he was in. And he said, that's no way to run a life. And he left. 
So boss management oriented people think of people as means to an end. If you're excellence oriented, you value people in and of themselves. Self-esteem. It's real obvious at the Olympics, sometimes when they're doing the interviewing afterwards, as to who uh, needs to beat others in order to have self-esteem and who has to beat their own best time. And you've seen the microphones thrust into these people's faces, and you've seen people with silvers that are in tears because they didn't gold. And you've seen people with bronze that are ecstatic because they did their very best, their best time ever. And it was just, you know, all kinds of miracles happened to allow them to, to be there representing, you know, East Wuth Asia and, uh, and representing their country and whatever and to be, uh, to be bronzing. So again, uh, self-esteem, some need to be, if you're success-oriented, you will need to beat others. And success, who gets it? Many want it, but only a few get it. When one of those, uh, when he gets his uh, dual-engine plane, he'll, uh, he'll fly in somewhere else and see that everybody else has got a jet, right? And he flies in with a jet, and he'll notice everybody else has a Gulfstream. He'll get there with a Gulfstream and notice everybody else has, you know, 727s and, and uh, you know, private 777s. It just, it never stops. Clinton goes to bed tonight unsatisfied. God, that wasn't even a joke. <laughs> but I'll use it someday. <laughs> Wonder what it meant. <laughs> now, why would anybody want to live their life based on principles? rather than on these pragmatics. May I suggest to you that it saves time, that the opportunity cost of living yourself by success is very high, because it uses up so much time you can't use the time for other things. What do I mean by that? Let's go back to one example. Lying isn't the only example, it's just one that um, um, and by the way, I want to go back to that 1982 campaign. There is one question I remember from eight years, excuse me, from eight months of intensive campaigning. I can remember one question I was asked. I can remember one answer. And I can do that, I think, verbatim. And that was the question where I lied. My Pinocchio gland, and it was not a mistake, I didn't misspeak. My Pinocchio gland does not flare up when I'm misspeaking. All right, my Pinocchio gland? What was the lie? <laughs> I'll tell you later. <laughs> Don't have time for it in this speech. But it's, right, right, they'll all demand to Carol Ann, give me an extra minute to be able to tell that. No, this speech is very tightly crafted to come in in exactly 20 minutes, you see. <laughs> Carol Ann is there. Right now, <laughs> he didn't craft this speech like that. He's lying, lying, lying through his teeth. <laughs> Look at her. <laughs> oh well, these things happen. The question was, how do you feel about the unions? And the answer was, I don't have uh, feelings about the unions per se, but I have very strong feelings and opinions about whether the government should be supporting them or thwarting them. And I believe that's where the focus ought to be. Did you catch the lie? 
I do have feelings about unions. I do have feelings about unions. Yeah. And I said, I don't have feelings about unions per se. That was a lie. Now here's the problem. Just in the case of the line, and in case of success, when you're, looking, when you're not looking at principles, when you're looking at when the customer calls and says, hey, can you ship this thing by Friday? And you say yes, knowing darn well your container isn't even going to come in until Monday. The luck, first you can get it out is Tuesday. And then you can ship it to him on Tuesday. He calls on Monday and says, where is it? And says, we shipped it. We'll put a tracer on it. And if we can't find it, we'll ship again tomorrow. We'll, double, you know, we'll send you a second one. OK, thanks. Right? You got the business. You were successful. You made a profit. You're bottom line oriented. You're results oriented. You got the job done. This is business. Right? All of this? Pay RAP. Yeah, so I'm spelling challenged. <laughs> but honesty is the best policy. And the, the, if you're living your life by excellence, by principles, you tell the truth. And you say, we're fresh out of that stuff. Uh, we'd love to have your business, and we can ship it on Tuesday. Our container gets in Monday. Um, if it's absolute urgency, I can give you the names of the third, fourth, and, best, uh, and fifth best suppliers in this business, and you can check with them. <laughs> you got a customer for life when you do that. You're shaking your head. excellence does provide in the final analysis caboose if you get the caboose if you get the engine going the caboose will come it's just where is your focus and if your focus is on helping that customer if your focus is on telling the truth if your focus is on excellence you'll get enough success but it takes immense amounts of time and ability to predict the future if you get into the lying part of it will he catch me in this will this backfire won't it backfire? You have to play through all of these. You have to play these chess maneuvers all over. And you have to take all of the different possibilities as quickly as you can in your mind about being caught and all this kind of a thing. And then you have to measure the prices of being caught. You have this huge amount of mental energy, not just even in remembering the damn things, OK? But in, even to tell one in the first place takes an immense amount of computational power to do it well. I mean, in no sense at all, you're going to be unsuccessful if you're a bad liar, right? So everybody's against bad lying. His problem was he got caught. <laughs> right. He's a bad politician. So I suggest to you that in your libertarianism, as a subset, hopefully, of your life, and in your life, that as you need to make decisions about what to do and how to do it, you ask not what works. You ask what's right. Thank you very much for your kind attention. <laughs> and now, there's this incredible segue as I hand the microphone and the rostrum over to Michael Emerling Cloud. But I can't remember what it is. <laughs>
Get the clumsiness. Where's George? Here, just a second. <laughs> Jack. There you go. Now I'll observe. There you go. Oh, look at me help. Oh, boy. Wasn't that wonderful? Do you need this one? I like talking before I begin. That's always better than after I end. Uh, at a Republican gatherings, people go home and they go, go to psychotherapy and talk to their ministers about these questions. Libertarians go, he's strange. <laughs> on your desk, on in front of you, there's a, a handout for those of you who are nosy, curious, uh, facetious, probing, uh, want to know uh, where the, the name Michael Cloud came from. It is not a, uh, a made-up name. It is my mother's maiden name, Cloud. I write under Michael Cloud and have for better than a decade stand-up comedy for people like Jane, uh, Jay Leno, uh, Joan Rivers. Oh, God, I'm trying to remember all the different people. Uh, you name it, I, I wrote some stuff for them. And a couple of years ago, for those of you who are nosy, and uh, I hope you all are, uh, there are extras for those of you who didn't get a copy. And what? Where? They're outside. They're being handed out as people come in now that we're getting caught up. If there's anyone who doesn't have a copy, raise your hand and we'll give you one. But uh, about two years ago, I discovered that I lost $10,000 worth of speechwriting business inside of one week. I'm a speechwriter. That's what I do for a living. I take uh, people who are articulate, good people, uh, attorneys, physicians, casino leaders, who have money that God wants them to give to me. And I help them redistribute the income through productive labor. It's called a free marketplace. And I went to the mall one day, and I ran into a physician. And he said, Michael, he says, uh, did so-and-so call you? And I said, no. He says, oh, I recommended he hire you, you as a speechwriter. So I wrote down the guy's name, called, called him up later. Well, I didn't know at the time, but I ran into someone else at the mall who was a casino executive with one of the larger casinos in town. Also had recommended me about three weeks prior to someone. Did he call you? No. These people remembered me and my work well enough to recommend me. The people they told it to could not remember it. And as a consequence, they mistakenly hired my competitors. And I couldn't have that happen to any more people. I mean... That's an accident just waiting to happen. And it turned out that I had lost $10,000 worth of business. Called up my father and said, Dad, I love you very much, but you're costing me money. $800 per letter to be exact. And my dad laughed. He was a U2 pilot. They laugh a lot. Um, and he said, he said, you know, that used to happen to me in the Air Force. And I said, now you tell me. I'm 42 years old and you tell me, right? And I said, look, here's what I want to do. I want to change my legal name. I've been writing comedy under Michael Cloud. I want to keep, I, I mean no disrespect. I love you very much. I respect you. I, I'm grateful you're my father. But I'd like to change my name legal to, legally to Michael Emerling Cloud and write under Michael Cloud. Would you be offended? Would you be hurt? And he laughed and he says, no. He says, I guess I should have done something like that years ago. I said, well, thanks a lot for warning me. So I write under Michael Cloud. I put the segue, Emerling, in the middle of it simply so that some conspiratorial libertarian wouldn't go, you know, the trilateral hired Michael years ago. And he changed his name to hide from creditors, and besides, there's something else. There's a woman in Waco. She got out just before the burning, and she's still burning for Michael. No, it's 
it's, it's something rather, rather obvious and rather mercenary. And I'm very pleased my mother's name, Cloud, is a Scotch-Irish name. And so if you see the name Michael Cloud from now on, that's what I write under. I left the Emmerling in there like John Cougar Mellencamp so you wouldn't be confused when you buy the next album. <laughs> now, we have a reading list. Before we go into my section, I'd like us to take a look at the reading list. Has everybody got their copies here? Now, what's... Books to libertarians is like giving heroin to junkies. <laughs> I feel deeply bad about it, but not bad enough to stop it, I gotta tell you. The truth is, uh, there are some very fascinating books out there. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the books. I'm going to ask you to highlight certain books that I think are particularly valuable. In the first section, in the first section, the very bottom book, In Search of Solutions by O'Hanlon and Wiener Davis, Mark that book, go buy it in your bookstore. It'll knock you on your bottom in terms of your relationship with the person you love, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your boss. It is, in my opinion, a groundbreaking, paradigm-shifting new way of dealing with human problems, being solution-oriented rather than problem-oriented. And it has changed my life. Uh, I'm now solving. <laughs> Two, uh, the section, Suggestive Reading for is Asking the Answer, Are Questions the Solution? The second book there, The Aladdin Factor by Canfield and Hanson, you might have seen their book uh, on the bestseller list, Chicken Soup for the Soul. It's a, a really nice, charming set of short stories. The Aladdin Factor is about asking questions, about asking for what you want. And I stumbled across it in a bookstore, as I usually do, being in bookstores like junkies go to shooting galleries. And I found it a charming, wonderful book focused on asking more questions, asking for what you want. And I would highly recommend. Now, the bottom book there, Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. If you only read one book on selling, if, you, if you're in a business that requires you to solicit business, to build business, that is the most powerful, effective book I have ever read. Not because the guy has brilliant ideas, but because he actually went out and empirically tested what works and what doesn't in terms of selling. For example, when I was in selling years ago, they used to say the most important part of the sale is the close. You should close from sunup to sundown, from the moment you say hello to the moment they say, get out of my life and never come back. You should close, 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 the most important part of the sale. Guess what he found out? Least important part of the sale. Had the least impact whatsoever on the sale. Well, if that's true, then why does everybody focus on closing? Because it's the last thing you do before they buy. Standard conditioning, the last thing I did was would you buy? And the guy goes, oh, hell, I'll do anything to get rid of you. And you said, it worked. The obnoxious and straining work. This book is absolutely stunning. And the focus on questions is brilliant. Absolutely stunningly brilliant. I've recommended it to Marshall. And uh, he hasn't got a copy yet. Uh, it's in hardback only. And I can't rave enough about the book. But I'll stop anyway. Page two. Now, this has to do with what I call uh, virus concepts. Some people call them memes. I don't think that's nearly powerful enough. Um, I won't go into everything in the, in the section there, but if you do not have a copy, let me go down uh, one, two, three, the third section, biosystem thinking. If you don't have a copy of Michael Rochelle's Bionomics, buy a copy and read it. It will change the way in which not only that you look at economics, but the way you express it to people that you want to communicate it to. Have you ever heard society is one big organism? 
You know, society is an organism, and of course, they want to be the vet. <laughs> First, they want to neuter you. Then they want to make sure that nothing else happens that might cause anything such as precious life or anything good. Michael Rochelle said, well, what if they're not thinking big enough? What if it's not society's an organism, but what if it's an ecosystem? What if the whole economy is like an environmental system and we have interacting elements that impact on each other? A stunningly brilliant book and a paradigm-shifting book. Metaphors. Uh, I recommend that all of those are just fun books, but if you can only pick up one, go pick The Babinski Reflex by Philip Goldberg. He's got all these scientific metaphors that are really a, a hoot. The butterfly effect, you know, if a butterfly flaps his wings in Brazil, does it cause a tornado in Texas? Well, if you're lucky. But I, I always say it's like the old, for one of a butterfly, a tornado was lost. Now, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm the president of Ad Mothers Against uh, Dam. Is it Dam? Mothers Against Dyslexia. It's, I got it wrong again. What's that? I said those jokes are Harry's favorite jokes. That's right, and I keep writing them for him. He loves them. Uh, the back page, uh, if you only pick up one there, I would recommend The Magic of a Report by Richardson and Margillis. If you want to read all of them, please do. Now, I could have made a list probably as long as the laissez-faire book catalog list, and God knows you all would have read it, because we like books. on this jam. Are we okay? If there's anyone in the back who cannot hear me, please raise your hand. Mm, good. All right. Are we ready to begin now? Time is now 948. What's the time of the first break, please? Does anybody know? What time? 1020? It'll probably be 1025. We lied. But I only did it because Marshall started the process in 1982. I'd have never come up with it on my own because <laughs> lying doesn't work. I'm an ethical guy, but lying doesn't work. But when Marshall said he did it, I figured, must be okay. Many of you don't know that Marshall, the Advocates for Self-Government was not Marshall's first idea for the name of the group. He wanted to call it Advocates of Self-Anarchy. He, he thought self-government was still too centralized. Later, later, later. I, I ask people, what we're going to do is, uh, I write very formal speeches for very formal business people for very formal occasions. But my style tends to be um, stand-up comedy, in-your-face, rock and roll, punk rock, uh, mongoose on steroids, uh, LSD gerbil, just a little bit more interactive. So if I ask you to do something that seems particularly crazy, I want you to write down, that's Michael, he's strange again. Now, I ask people to make agreements when we come in during a seminar, uh, and, and it's really important to me. Let me tell you why. I had a guy call me up on the phone and give me the greatest compliment I've ever received in my life. He called me up and he said, Michael, I don't like you. 
I don't like what you do. I don't like the people you work with. But you are the best speechwriter I have ever seen in my life. And I was flattered because we can't always do business with people we love, but we can do business with people we respect. So I'm going to ask you to make a few agreements with me, and I'm going to ask you to sort of make them with each other. It's your choice. You're free. You're libertarian. You have every right to make whatever decision. First agreement, and I'd like you to make it with me, is that it's okay for me to make mistakes and be wrong on at least a few things during the weekend. Would you agree? I need your agreement on this. This is important to me. I want you to agree it's okay for me to make some mistakes. Marsha won't make any, but I promise I will. I've got a few mistakes planned in here I've got you to know. Two, I'd like you to agree not to let the wrong stuff I say or the wrong stuff I do stand in the way of your learning the right stuff. Would you be willing to do that? All right? Sort of common sense is a marketplace approach. Life is a cafeteria. Take what you want, leave the rest, pay for what you get. That's fair, isn't it? Third, I want you to agree to take what you like, take what you need, take what you can use, and leave everything else here in the room. Would you agree to do that? All right, I know you won't, but she will. Now, the reason I ask people to do this is real simple. I find that most libertarians are very self-righteous people. That's absolutely right. That child knows. And the reason we are is that our whole lives, we've had people tell us we're wrong, we're wrong, we're wrong, we're wrong. And we studied, and we, we went through what St. John called a dark night of the soul. We've all had nights when we said, why? Why am I doing this? Nobody agrees with me. They think I'm nuts. My parents think it's a phase I'm going through. My teachers think I'm out of my mind. Why am I doing this? And it takes a lot of courage to stand alone. It takes a lot of courage to say all of society is wrong if they believe otherwise. This is the right, honest thing to do. And that is a very ethical and it's a very, very difficult process to go through. But sometimes after we've gone through the dark night of the soul, after we've looked in the mirror spiritually and moralistically, sometimes we get a little self-righteous with people who haven't found Jesus. Sometimes we think that everybody should understand it like we do and we get self-righteous, and we get to be right, and we get to consign them to a very low rung of hell, probably the express train. And sometimes, because of that self-righteousness, we turn it on each other. Libertarians are people who spend 98% of their time arguing about the 2% they disagree on. And 2% of their time talking about the 98% they agree on. That child is going to be a public speaker. <laughs> that is the next Marshall Fritz in larval form. <laughs> I look at life as, as a big marketplace. If you and I don't agree, Jack, on something, we don't have to do business. I can go over here, and I can do business with Mag. And if she and I don't agree, I can go over here to John. John will see the light. And if he doesn't, I can go see Marshall. He'll feel the heat. And if Marshall doesn't agree, I can go over here. 
If I don't like McDonald's, I can go to Burger King. If I don't like Burger King, I can go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. If I don't like Kentucky Fried Chicken, there's Taco Bell. I don't say, dog on those people at, at McDonald's and pick at them all day. How dare they have a quarter pounder? Everybody else is going metric. What's the matter with these people? I go where I'm wanted. I go where I can do business. But in libertarian circles, if we disagree, we'll spend our times arguing rather than find people we agree with to work with. But that's the way a marketplace works, isn't it? We are using social democratic programs in our head to accomplish libertarian goals. Dumb. You can write that down. D-U-M, dumb. <laughs> I went to public schools. What do you expect on spelling? Now, two holy men. The country is India. They walk up to the, the bank of the river. It's a dirty, muddy river, as most rivers are in India. And they see a young girl, perhaps 13 years old, wearing her family's finest raiment. And women there are dissed. Women there are considered less than human. And you have to give a dowry to get them off your family's plantation and onto someone else's family. This poor girl cannot walk across the river because that's all the clothing she has. One of the monks looks at her and with compassion lifts her up and carries her across, sets her down, bows, and smiles. Two monks walk on for two miles. The first monk turns to the to the man who had lifted her and said, how dare you carry that woman? You know our religious order forbids us to touch women. The other monk smiles and said, I put her down two miles ago. Why are you still carrying her? Perhaps we can do a little bit of that with our fellow libertarians who make mistakes or commit moral errors, put them down two miles ago because it was a long time ago, and they've grown since then. There's a story about the Buddha in India. I like some of these Eastern stories. They're very strange. They sort of fit into my psyche, sort of strange. The Buddha had apparently attracted the boy of a merchant. And the boy had decided to take the, the, the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment and had followed the Buddha. And the father was just livid. How dare his son, who could have been a very wealthy merchant, walk away from all that his family had to give them and follow the Buddha. And he went to the Buddha and read him the riot act, probably in Sanskrit. And he said, you're terrible. Look what you've done to my child's life. My child was going to do this. He was going to follow in my footsteps. How dare you do this? And the Buddha very, very calmly smiled and looked and listened and nodded, as only a Buddha can do, or maybe a Christ too. And he said, are you finished, sir, after the man had had lambasted him for the previous 40 minutes. The man said, yes. He said, well, I have a question for you. The man said, well, yes. He said, if you prepared a banquet, a sumptuous banquet, beautiful dishes, exotic spices, and you invited several guests to share it with you, and no one came, what would you do? And the man says, well, I guess I would eat it myself. And the Buddha said, you've prepared a luscious banquet for me, and I'm not attending. Good day. Later, that will sink in. <laughs> now, let's play with tools. We're going to do, and, and for those of you in the front row, don't worry about it, because I'm going to go back and forth. I'll stand on chairs. I, I have a very, very bad habits of... of 
stopping and looking people in the eye, embarrassing the hell out of people who, I, who should know better uh, than to be close to me. My, my theory is if they're close enough to be touched, it's their own damn problem. <laughs> if God didn't want me to be able to touch them, he would have left my arms much shorter. Then I'd have probably got up very close. Now, we're going to talk about tools, skills, and strategies of persuasion. And I hope that you'll find them interesting. Marshall and I have at different times dealt in communicating ideas uh, all across the venues. Marshall has done, done work with, with Catholics, with uh, Rotary Club, Civitan service groups, uh, colleges. He he's, uh, holds the distinction of sleeping on more uh, couches in the libertarian movement in more cities than any libertarian alive. And I, I think that was both his reward and his punishment. <laughs> Marshall has been a road warrior for liberty. And you want to share that with everyone? <laughs> Thank you for your couch. Thank you for your couch. But the fact is that in the course of our travels, Marshall and I, and, and for that matter, people here in the room have discovered certain things that are very effective in communicating ideas. I look for different ways of communicating ideas. I'm probably on consultation with more libertarians than anybody else that you know. People that even claim they don't talk to me call me up and go, Michael, I know I'm not supposed to be talking to you. I, I know you're persona non grata where I work, but could you help me with this problem? Yeah, I'll be glad to. Look, I can't pay you for it. I d don't worry about the pay. Why can't you pay me? <laughs> and next thing I know, they'll be quoted with a line I wrote for them, and I'll laugh because, it's, I mean, living well is the best revenge, and writing well is even more delicious. The, the reality is that what happens is in the course of our, our travels, in the course of our explorations, we've discovered things that are very effective as ways of communicating ideas. And I believe that there was a quote in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there was a man they thought him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. And knowledge is the only thing that grows as you give it away. I mean, if I give you a new idea, John, am I worse off or are you better off? Have I lost anything? I might have gained something. I might have learned a better way of formulating it. And if you have an idea and give it to me, have you lost anything? It didn't cost you anything. Knowledge is the abundance culture, not the scarcity culture. So it's very important not only to share your ideas, but your ways of communicating your ideas. Has anybody here fallen so deeply, desperately in love with someone that words would not come to their mouths? Have you ever just, it brought tears to your heart. You just didn't know how to say I love you. I've had nights like that. I would have given anything to know the right words, the words that would steal her heart and bring her into my life. And I couldn't find them. And if someone could share with me words that would have worked, I would have paid them any king's ransom that I could have borrowed, begged, or stolen. But to a lot of us, freedom is as important as love. Freedom is the oxygen we breathe and we live in, and it makes human choice and human evolution and human decency and human character possible. And when we don't have the right words to communicate our ideas, it's a less perilous, a less frightening version of not knowing how to say I love you. How many times have you walked away from a conversation and go, I just couldn't find the words? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. 
I know what's happened to Marshall. I know what's happened to Carol Ann. We've all had those. If that's true, then what we want to do is find the things that are effective, share them with the people we love and care about, and people that are our comrades, people who share our values, people who, are, who honor the principles that we love, libertarians, individualists. Abraham Maslow said, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. Well, I've got a libertarian version for you. No, them libertarians, those self-governors. When the only tool you have is an argument, everything starts looking like a debate. That's the libertarian version. Do you know how a libertarian con uh, conversation begins? It's very simple. Libertarians are people who cannot take yes for an answer. <laughs> I will be having a perfectly normal conversation with someone who appears to be normal. He's a libertarian. Got to watch him. You know you're going to read about him someday. He was a quiet man until he climbed the tower with a big gun. <laughs> we will And the first part will go, I believe this. And the person will go, uh-huh. And then I'll go, I believe this. And the person will go, uh-huh. And as long as we agree, he'll just go, uh-huh. That's the extent of his contribution. And as soon as I say something that in his mind is wrong, he'll go, now wait a minute. And the rest of the night will be spent on the no, on the disagreement. Libertarians are people who cannot take yes for an answer. And this is the reason so many libertarian men are unmarried. <laughs> And now, just for the record, I'm unmarried, but there's a perfectly good reason for it. Carol Ann, could you tell them what the good reason is? I can't think of it. I don't know. I'm a hell of a catch. Everybody throws me back. They go, I think he's been down water from Three Mile Island. Toxic spill. The truth is that when we focus on simply trying to argue people into agreement, they argue their way into disagreement. When we come from a position of disagreement, of you're wrong, people are reciprocal. You've heard you reap what you sow, you get what you give. If I treat you with disrespect, how are you going to likely treat me? If at all. If at all. He might leave. If I treat you without caring or concern, might you treat me with indifference? If I lie to you, might you lie back? If I'm harsh to you, might you be harsh back? People hate people who hate them. It is human nature, and it's very, very difficult not to. And those who can, God bless you, and I hope that someday I'll learn how to do it better. But the truth is, when we come into an argument, starting from the position of I'm right and you're wrong, what's their position going to be? No, you're wrong and I'm right. We cannot take yes for an answer, and as a consequence, it's very hard to communicate. And that's why people like Marshall and Carol Ann Rand and myself got involved in this area. So let's talk about a few of the tools of communication, the tools of persuasion, the tools of marketing the marketplace, of freely offering the free market. Now, I take a toolbox theory of persuasion. Every tool is a technique. Let me give you an example. I saw Ed Clark. Does everybody know who Ed Clark is, our 1980 libertarian presidential candidate? I saw Ed in a conversation with a uh, news reporter. And Ed didn't know he had a technique going. Ed was running on three issues. He's running for governor of California, and the reporter wanted to ask him a question that had nothing to do with his three key issues. And he says, well, isn't it true you libertarians believe in legalizing drugs? Now, listen to Ed's answer. Yes. But the issues in this campaign are 
choice in education, huge tax cuts, and deregulation of our state economy. Now, Ed passed it off as just a conversation. Ed immediately stuck into my toolbox. Why? If you know anything about media people, they can't use anything less than 20 seconds. So the worst thing you can do is give them one-word answers. They got nothing to quote. Did he lie about the issue? Mm-mm. Told them the truth. Did he give them anything quotable? Mm-mm. Didn't know it to him. If he would have spent time on something that didn't matter to his campaign, wouldn't he be mispresenting his message? If you spend 90% of your time on 10% on that doesn't matter, aren't you communicating something that isn't important? That, to me, was a technique. And I said, mm, I'll remember that. And I passed it. Matter of fact, I taught it to Ed. I said, oh, by the way, Ed, that was a good technique. And he said, what? I said, you can use that with other stuff. And he says, you're right. And I pass that on to candidates I work with. When you have an answer, tell them the truth. Make it so short they can't quote it. Then talk about what's important in your campaign. Is it ethical? Yep. Is it fun? Yep. Does it piss off the media? You bet. <laughs> hey, where did I sign an agreement that said I allow myself to be a punching bag to, to the liberal media? I, I didn't sign that. Now, I know Marshall did. But Mar Marshall's a big bop bag. You know, you knock him and he just bounces right back up and he's in your face again. Now, when I give you a screwdriver, do, it, do you lose the hammer? When I add a saw to your toolbox, does it take away the hammer? Each new tool adds choices. If you teach a kid how to multiply, do you take away his ability to add and subtract? Every new technique, every new tool of communication that you learn adds to your toolbox. It's one more thing you can use. Do you have to use it? No. Do you have the choice of using it? Yes. Every good mechanic wants a good toolbox, one that he can use, one that's orderly. Likewise, every carpenter. And that's equally true of communication. Each new tool that you get adds choices, adds choices in communication. Obvious, right? You know my theory of the obvious. Obvious means overlooked. Write it down. We overlook the obvious every day. You want an obvious question? How many of you people are married? Raise your hands. Okay, those of you who are married, when is the best time to tell your wife that you love her? Before someone else does. <laughs> That's obvious. How many marriages fall apart because people forget to say, I love you? because they forget to spend time with the people that they deeply care about. They're too busy earning a living to make a life. It happens every day. Obvious, isn't it? Take that home. Tell your partner you love them, please, tonight. And if you're here alone, don't tell someone else. You call them on the phone. I don't want to hear any stories about Michael recommended love the one you're with. No siree. We're ethical here, except for Marshall in 1982. <laughs> I'll pay for that later. You know I'm going to pay for that. Now, each tool has many uses. That's an interesting thing about tools. You can use a screwdriver for numerous uses. Street gangs have found out they make great knives, and it's hard to get picked up with a screwdriver. I was just tightening things, like Charlie and Huerta and Jorge. I was tightening them. I know they're in the street, but it's tough to bust somebody carrying a screwdriver. Every tool has multiple uses. Anybody that's ever had a, a screw that they couldn't tighten has taken out a dime at some time to tighten it up, or a quarter, depending on the size of the, the slot in it. Now, the more you use, the more you experiment with a tool, the more you discuss it with others who use it, the more uses you'll discover. 
Has anybody ever got a tool? For, let's take an example. Anybody have a personal computer in their house? What a dumb question to ask. <laughs> How many of you who have personal computers in your, in your home use all the different systems in the computer? How many of you don't know how to use many of the systems that have been there for many years. How many of you think it makes a nice place to put a flower pot sometimes? <laughs> the fact is, all tools have more uses than we put them to. Isn't that that's sort of human nature? I've got Q&A as my software. I've got some files in there. I don't know what the hell they're for. It's a big typewriter for me. I'm a speechwriter. I'm not trying to do computer stuff. That's for others. My job is to present meaningful rhetoric and get paid. That's my job. Every new tool you add, not only does it add one more choice to your toolbox, but since each tool has multiple uses, you get not simply one choice, but maybe two, three, four, or five new choices. And we're going to deal with some of those during the day. Now, why am I using tool as a metaphor? Because if I explain to you some long praxeological underpinnings of the theoretical foundations, of the cognitive origins, of the epistemological basis, of the phenomenology of concepts, your eyes are going to glaze over and you're going to look like Republicans at a dole gathering. <laughs> and I mean no disrespect to those Republicans, but I like people with IQs higher than room temperature. It's just a bias I have. I like people that when I say good morning to you are not stuck for an answer. I like libertarians, smarter than many other people. Okay. Now, each tool has limitations. Not only does each tool have multiple uses, but each tool has limitations. Certain things tools aren't good for. A hammer doesn't make a real good saw. Though God knows many of us have tried. A hammer is not a good way to put a screw into the wall, though I know some guys who've tried that too. There are things it won't work on, uses it can't fulfill. A sledgehammer is not great for diamond cutting. A potato peeler for brain surgery, though I can think of a few people that I wouldn't mind. And I mean that with love. Now, your toolbox, the number of skills that you have, the number of different ways in which you can communicate libertarian ideas. And for example, the Ransberger pivot, that's a tool. The late great libertarian macho flash is a tool that doesn't work. The reverse macho flash is a tool that does work. Feel felt found, for those of you in the sales business, is a tool that works. You're out of your mind is a tool that doesn't work. Now, what I'm going to recommend is a different way of approaching communication. And I'm using this toolbox metaphor, and I want you to think about what I'm getting ready to say here. Here's what I'm suggesting. All of us have a specific toolbox. All of us have different abilities to communicate ideas. You might have four or five techniques that you regularly use. You might have five or six, you might have six or seven, you might have to borrow from the other three. I have to borrow from Marshall all the time. The fact is that our toolbox shows what we're able to do. Now, I'm going to make a suggestion that instead of going out and looking for problems and saying, God, where can I find a tool for the problem? I'm going to suggest that you look for problems that fit your tool. Now, I want you to write that down. Instead of looking for new arguments, to solve their problems about libertarianism. Instead of looking for new tools for a problem that you can't fix, I want you to look inside your toolbox and say, what problems do I have that fit my tool? For example, who here is a Christian? Could you raise your hand? 
Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel comfortable with talking with people in your church about libertarianism? Do you? Do you? That's an example of, for example, there are certain libertarians that if you go go to a church, they would freak. You know, oh my lord, that's terrible. Uh, some people just don't feel comfortable. There are other people who wouldn't feel comfortable talking to a right to life uh, gathering. Uh, Doris Gordon would feel very comfortable. Others wouldn't feel very comfortable addressing a national organization for women gathering. I would. Any organization for women is okay. <laughs> well, all right, you can go to national organization for men if you feel very, very strongly about that. Now, I'm suggesting that you find out what tools you have and you go look for problems that fit it. For example, if you're very good at answering, for example, Marshall is now doing Society for Separation of School and State. Did I get that right? Is that the correct title? <coughs> Alliance for Separation of School and State. No, where's the S? S's? Separation. Separation of the Alliance for States. <laughs> what is the... <laughs> the fact is that Marshall may feel very comfortable going to homeschooling groups. Marshall may feel very comfortable going to radio talk show people who don't think the school system works so well. That's a tool that he has. He has, he has a toolbox that works with communicating people on free market schooling on choice in education, on separating schools in the state. What I'm suggesting is you, you look at your own personal toolbox, find out what you're particularly good at, and look for plenty of instances in it. If you're great at talking to people who are Rotary Club members, spend your time talking to Rotary Club members. If you're great talking to Boy Scouts, talk to Boy Scouts. If you're super talking with punk rockers, talk with punk rockers. If you're, if you're great at talking to Generation Xers, the hell with you. If you're... <laughs> If you're particularly good at talking to people who are captains of industry or second lieutenants of industry, if they haven't quite made it to captain, then talk to those people because that's your key tool. Some of us are going to be good in an educational context. Some are going to be good with talk radio. Some are going to be good one-on-one. -on -one. Some are going to be good with groups. Find out where your tools work best and do a lot of it. It's obvious, isn't it? Obvious means overlooked. What tools do I have that enable me to do certain things really well and find lots of places to do it? I know a guy named Richard uh, Bandler who developed something called a uh, five-minute phobia cure, which is really great. I'd like to give phobias to people. I, you know, I, I, I read the survey that said 90% of men are more scared of public speaking than they are of dying. I, I've seen a lot of public speakers that I would like to give that fear to, so they would quit, because they need it. They're, they're boring people. Now. The fact is that Richard would, would call people up and say, do you have any clients? He'd call up therapists, say, do you have any clients who have phobias? Sure, send them over. He didn't call up and say, do you have anybody with marital difficulties? He said, do you got anybody with this problem? He says, I got a tool. My tool is I can cure phobias in five minutes. Send over your people that need my tool. And everybody thought he was a genius and a whiz. Well, he was at phobias. He couldn't handle marital difficulties, couldn't retain a relationship any better than I could. What a surprise. So he invited people over who had phobias, and everybody thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and he was, with phobias. Find out what your tools are good for, and find a lot of places to use a particular tool. It's obvious, isn't it? And it does indeed work. Now, I'm suggesting you be a tool in search of a right task, not a taskmaster in search of the right tool. I have a lot of libertarians come up to me and go, I have this problem, this, I've got this know-it-all, self-righteous, Bleepity, 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 bleep. How you know that they fit that category? Because they don't agree with my libertarian friend. How do I fix him? You know, I got a broken person here. Fix him for me, Michael. Like, 
I'm, I'm sorry, I, you know, I, 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 I heal the sick, I don't raise the dead. <laughs> Everybody's got limitations, me too. Now, the fact is that if I had a choice of finding people, for example, who I would have to spend five years on to convince them to become libertarians with my greatest efforts, my most persuasive abilities, or during the five years I could talk to 5,000 or 50,000 or 500,000 people that I could persuade using the stuff I have, which is more sensible. That's right. You know, like, like, they, like they say, you know, uh, the race is not always to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but that's the way to bet. Damon Runyon. Now, now you don't need a lot of tools in your, in your toolbox to get equipped for most jobs. All you need is a few basic tools that you're good at, and we're going to talk about different ones you have. You already have a toolbox, whether you want one or not. You've already got a set of techniques that you already use, and you probably rely on the same two or three every time. And that's why you get stuck, because you only have two or three if you're like many people. Me too. I get stuck just like you do. I get stuck in different areas because I have different tools. You get stuck in your areas. Now, you don't need a lot of tools to be equipped for most jobs, but you do need the basic tools. Tools is any particular technique for communicating a libertarian idea. It could be a, something as simple as a question. By the way, just to clarify my thinking, would you rather the people be more free or less free? <laughs> I love asking that question of everybody. People go, no, I kind of like pushing them around myself. <laughs> you got to remember, all the people that have that attitude would never talk with me. So everybody I talk to naturally wants to be more free of those people. Those people are in Washington, D.C., the Sodom and Gomorrah of modern America. Now, there are tools, techniques, okay? And then there are skills. Skills are how well you wield the tool. It's not at all uncommon when we start with anything, we are clumsy. We begin ignorant, incompetent, and clumsy. That's just life. To develop, we have to be willing to fail. Uh-oh, fail, the F word. Failure is the only truly American sin. You know, you, you, can, you can point out the most brilliantly made movie in the world, artistically brilliant. If it doesn't make box office, what do they say? It was a failure. Karl Marx's Das Kapital, first edition, sold 200 copies. Did he fail? Yes. Wish he would have, <laughs> but he didn't. Failed economics, he certainly did. To grow, we have to be willing to be clumsy. To go forward, we have to be willing to make mistakes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend to you a, a rule of, of growth. If you're never failing in your communication, if you're never clumsy, if you aren't learning, you aren't growing, and you aren't exploring. You know, the truth of the matter is, I fail more often than any five people in this room because I go out and try more stuff. Marsha Fritz once called me up and had some idea for a new spin on my political cross-dressing technique. And he says, do you think it's a good idea? And I said, I don't know. I'll go find out. I went to libraries. I went to uh, bookstores. And I tried it out on people. I said, hey, I got this weird friend in California. He just told me something interesting. Can I tell you about it and ask them what they think? And people will tell you. People will answer anything. They will answer sex surveys. They'll tell you the most personal things of their life. And it's amazing what you can find out if you're willing to go out there and fail. Well, in order for me to know whether it worked, I had to go try it, didn't I? So I went out and tested it. I tried it on 35 people. It sounded like a good theory. It didn't work. 
So Marsha was in the same category as me. I tried about a dozen that didn't work too. And what's left over, the stuff I teach, is the stuff that did work. So if you're never failing, you're not trying. There's a story called The Far Side of Failure, which is a story about Thomas Watson. It was written by, uh, I forget the guy's name. It was a, a, a Christian writer whose name escapes me. It'll, it'll occur to me when I don't need it later. Um, this guy's a writer, and he doesn't know who Thomas Watson is, but he wants to do a story on, uh, on success. And he comes in to interview Watson and has no idea about what IBM is. And, my goodness, what a big place this is. And Watson says, what do you do for a living? The guy says, I'm a writer. He says, how well are you doing? And he says, I'm not really doing so well. And he says, oh, I don't know a lot about writing. He says, but I can tell you how to succeed at writing. You can, huh? You don't know anything about writing, but you can tell me how to succeed. He says, oh, yeah. Double your rate of failure. Because success is on the far side of failure. If you know you're going to fail nine times out of ten, if you do ten times as much stuff, you're going to succeed a lot. Do you know whose rule of, of production that was? George Bernard Shaw. He said, I found out that nine out of ten things I wrote were garbage. Nobody wanted them. So I wrote ten times as much. Said, well, there's a certain wisdom to that. If you know as a salesperson that nine out of ten people won't buy and you, and you need to make one sale a day, how many people do you need to talk to? Ten. Now, skills are developed on these particular tools pretty simply and straightforwardly by attentive, repeated practice. That's the road to mastery. We don't do what we intend. We do what we rehearse. See, most libertarians, I, I, I love libertarians. We are so sweet. We are such neat people. They will read a book. They'll put it in their library, and they'll smile a lot. And in conversations, they'll go, yep, I read that book. Do anything different? Nope, but I can tell you what day I read it. So much of the ideas we get become part of our libraries, not part of our lives. I don't want you to read a book on love and then be indifferent to the people you're close to. I want you to express it. I don't want this to be part of your library. I want it to be part of your life. And that's what the skill part of the tool is. Skill comes from repeated, attentive practice. And there are pleasures in practice. It's a lot of fun. And we're going to try some of these today. Now, sometimes people say, I'll start trying when I become more confident. Can I tell you the truth? You become more confident when you try more often. It's just the opposite of the way that you thought it might be. So there's tools, there's skills, and there's strategies. And then I'm done with the theoretical stuff here, and I get to move on to the rock and roll. Strategies. Basically, strategy is how, when, and where, and with whom do you use the tool? Where do I use this technique? If I'm going to use a, a particular approach, if I'm going to use a story about the Judas bargain, I might use it with a Christian friend. I have a Jewish friend who says, you know the difference, Michael, between Muslims and Christians and Jews? I knew it was a setup for a joke, so I said, no, Don, what? He says, Muslims think they're here to do the will of Allah. I said, okay. He says, Christians think they're here to worship God. I said, yeah. And Jews think we're here to argue with him. <laughs> And I said, have you told that to your rabbi? He said, yes, he liked it very much. I said, did he argue with you? And he said, yes, he did. Funny. <laughs> Strategies are who, what, when, where, and how do you use it. Some of these approaches will work with some people and not with another. If I can't convince you with one approach, instead of saying you're wrong, there's something the matter with him, change what I'm doing. Change tools. Now, strategy is in what combinations you use the tools. Sort of obvious. Now, how do you learn strategies? Real simple. Use the tool a lot. And I'm going to give you some homework assignments that are voluntary. You don't have to do them. Caroline Rand is going to talk about listening. 
And a little later in the day, I'm going to talk about questions. And my assignment is for this weekend. Hers is for this week. We're going to give you an opportunity to have a ball practicing these things. People around you are going to go, are, are you in love? Is, is something going on here? And you go, no. And you'll smugly not tell them that you went to an advocate seminar. Because they're going to wonder what's going on in your life, and they're going to be responding in ways that are very positive. First, you've got to use the tool a lot. You've got to notice what results you're getting. Is it working, isn't it? Is it connecting, isn't it? You have to just simply pay attention to what's happening. Don't judge it. Don't say right and wrong what happened. They responded positively. They didn't respond positively. Do it a lot. Notice the results. Watch and listen to other people using the tool. I used to go, I used to go out with different libertarians, and we would go talk to high schools. And one of us would talk in one class and handle the seminar, and the other would talk in the next class. And we would critique each other in a positive way, like, you did this very well. I thought you could have answered this better here. By watching and listening to each other using the skills, we both grew. Buddy work works really well. Anybody that's ever seen LDS, Mormons, you know, they're on bicycles, two of them come two by two. The reason they do that is because it gets lonely out there sometimes, and they can help each other. You know, John, I think you should have done it this way. Oh, I think you're right. Probably I should have done it this way. What? Synergy. Synergy. That's right. That's, you know what? Synergy is two people sinning together. <laughs> now, Pay attention to the outcome other people are getting using the tool. Don't feel uncomfortable if you've got a friend in your town. Take them out with you. Practice the technique. Good place to try it? High school classrooms. I love going there. Church groups are great places. Let me ask you a question. Where are you most comfortable communicating your self-governing ideas, your libertarian ideas? Could Raise your hand if you've got a place where you go, yeah, I like talking about it to people here. Does anybody have a favorite place? Yes. Your church. Okay, very good. On the telephone? On the telephone? All right. Yes, sir. Your wife. She ain't convinced yet? <laughs> Other places, anybody have venues that they're very comfortable? Yes. All right. College political science classes. You know where I like? Where? Go. Student government. Very good. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> radio talk shows are excellent. Tell you something about radio talk shows. 90% of the people listening to the radio talk shows are registered voters. 62% of the general population. 70-some percent of them have high school, two years of high school versus the general population that on average has no, or pardon me, no two years of college. As a group, they tend to be bright. They tend to be independent. They tend to be thoughtful, ideal venue. Yes. Ooh, she's got them in the cockpit. Excuse me, do I have to pull the emergency cord, or are you going to listen? <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll listen. Hi, this is the co-pilot I've had to take over from the captain on the grounds he wouldn't agree with me on limited government. I don't want to start anything, but I think he's in the front lavatory locked in trying to smoke a cigarette while disconnecting the alarm. Now, it's interesting if you... if. Ways of picking up tools are pretty straightforward and pretty simple. What I like to do is ask other people what they're doing. How do you go out and communicate the ideas? What arguments do you use? What approaches? And people will tell you. Now, a couple of basic rules, and then we're going to take a break, and we're going to go into the fun box. Now, the rules I try and do is this. 
with the tools, if what you're doing doesn't work, stop doing it. If what you're doing works, do more of it. Very obvious cybernetic principle. And yet, we make the mistake every day. Our kid doesn't pick up his room, what do we say? I told you to pick up your room, Johnny. Now that doesn't work because Johnny still doesn't pick it up. So we get clever. I told you to pick up your room. Like he's having problems with words running together. <laughs> that doesn't work, so we say it louder. I told you to pick up your room. That doesn't work, so what do we do? It isn't working, we must do more of it. We must do more. How many times do I have to tell you, pick up your room? Your child is trying to teach you to stop doing that, and you aren't learning. If you find something that really works, use it again and again. If you find out one line particularly works good, Johnny, I'd like you to take care of the room before we go to the movies, and it always works. A, you're going to see a lot of movies. B, use more of it. Now, those are the basic principles. Some of it you're going to go, this is too obvious. This is too easy. Everybody knows this. What could we possibly learn from this? How could it possibly affect the way we're going to communicate? And you know you're really right. Probably is too obvious. Probably none of this will work at all. Probably nobody ever uses anything like this. Probably what I'm doing is so successful, I shouldn't add any tools to my toolbox or develop my skills. Probably there's nothing here I can use. And I know that you might think that, and you might be right, and it's okay to be right. And it's okay for you to go home on Tuesday or Wednesday and go, you know, you're right, I can use that with my boss. And on Wednesday, when you're talking to the woman you love or the man you love, you say, oh, I can use that here but you can dismiss what I'm saying here now and not even worry about it and not even think about it on Tuesday because now it's time for a break. Do <laughs> you have any announcements?